We're going to have a conversation tonight about the biblical wife. And that's how we're going to honor God. First, we're going to do a little bit of honoring God in prayer. And then we'll sing a song. And to do those both, will you please stand with me? Let me pray for our time. Lord God, it is our pleasure, it is our delight to have a day devoted to your worship. We love to worship you. We love to think about your thoughts and evaluate them in in light of the way that we uh, live our lives. And so, Lord, we look to do that tonight as we have a conversation about what it is to be a biblical wife. Would you attend this time? Would you attend this fellowship? Would you be with us, Lord, and prepare our hearts for what we will hear and how we need to respond? Lord, would you bless this uh, time of worship and Lord, would you just be with us tonight? We want to honor you and glorify you with all of our lives, and we look forward to doing that in this fellowship tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so hymn 281, hymn 281, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Singing all four verses. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I, Whereby thy grace to claim I'll wash my garments white In the blood of Calvary's Lamb Jesus paid it all All to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Verse 4 And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Do that again. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. You may be seated.
I think that ser- song serves as a good reminder for us. Did he pay for uh, just the past sins? Was it just the past sins that Christ paid for? He paid it all, right? So that's past, present, future. We're completely covered by the blood of Calvary's Lamb. What a blessing that is to know that, particularly in light of what we'll talk about tonight. Because inevitably, when you're talking about husbands, as we did the previous time, you're talking about wives and the roles that we're supposed to play, we understand we fall short. So the biblical standard is necessary to be brought uh, in front of us so that we can then evaluate our lives and, and look at our lives in comparison to the standard that comes right off the pages of Scripture, which we hold so dear. Well, last time I had uh, began speaking to you, we had a conversation that started with a um, mention of a preacher and a plantation owner named Charles Colcock Jones. He was a, a Georgia plantation owner in the 1800s, early 1800s. And as I had mentioned before, he was a genuine lover, learner, and leader of his wife. And those were the three qualities that we pulled out for the, um, the biblical husband's role. And this, he was a lover and learner and leader for his wife, Mary. I remember I had mentioned that she happened to be his cousin. And one of the challenges in being a leader was he had to actually go and talk to his uncle about this relationship getting kicked off. And he was affirming of that. But I want to turn my attention to Mary. And I want to open our time with a conversation about her because Mary and Charles had a wonderful relationship and a marriage and a ministry together. Mary was a homemaker. She was committed to the family and particularly to her husband. She was uh, one who honored her husband. She trusted God and, and she trusted Charles. And consequently, she was a wonderful helper to Charles and to life, his life and his ministry. This is where we're going tonight. Wives are those who need to be honorers, helpers, and homemakers. Mary was, first of all, a Christian. She loved Jesus Christ with her whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. She trusted Christ first above all other things. And the scripture she leaned on. As a result, she found fulfillment in life in this. In helping her husband in his service to Christ. At the age of 27, she could be found sitting on the front porch as the sun was low in the treetops, straining her eyes for the sight of her husband returning on horseback. From another long evening of teaching and preaching to plantation slaves all around Liberty County in coastal Georgia. Preaching to slaves had become the ministry that marked the life of Charles Colcock Jones. And where he understood the abolitionist position that the slaves needed and had the right to freedom, he was convinced that their greatest need was not necessarily freedom from plantation slavery, but freedom from sin, freedom from sin. And Charles picked up this conviction when he went to seminary, and he spent his life endeavoring to evangelize black men and women bound in slavery in Georgia. Charles died in 1863, two years before the Civil War ended. And I want you to hear what Mary Jones had to say to a union general about her husband's ministry. She told a union general this, of her husband's devoted effort to benefit the Negro race, saying his record is on high, and the good he accomplished in their elevation and true conversion to God will meet an eternal reward. She was well pleased with her husband's ministry to the black people in Georgia that were bound in slavery. In later years, continuing to defend the ministry of her husband, Mary would say she believed it 
not to be extravagant to say more was done for the solid benefit of the Negro through Charles' instrumentality than, his, than has been since affected than has, than has since been affected by all the freedman bureaus in the land. That's not too hard to come by, right? Government program or the preaching of the word, which one you want? So she was saying the preaching of the word had done more than any government program. Mary Jones was a helper to her husband. She encouraged Charles in his service to Christ. She found her ministry, her mission in life as the helpmate of Charles Jones. And after his passing, Mary wrote these words. She said, He is so constantly in my thoughts and affections that I often look around to see if I cannot meet his eye or hear his voice. I often sit at twilight in his lonely study and wish it were given to me to behold his precious face and form one more time on earth. And then this, she said this, I do bless my Lord and Savior for the mercy and privilege of such a companionship, of such an association, that was my lot that my loss that my lot was cast with such an eminent and godly minister. And so from Mary Jones we see devotion, commitment, and from these comments, love and joy. Now, having read this account of Mary Jones, you can imagine as my study was going on for preparing to teach you guys tonight, the the sharp contrast that hit my eyes when I saw a national headline from this previous weekend. There was a professional golfer's wife who was arrested for domestic abuse. The guy had previously won a U.S. Open and other PGA Tour events. But just the other week at the TPC Sawgrass, he didn't qualify on the Thursday and Friday rounds to play in the Saturday and Sunday rounds, and he had to go home and forfeit the opportunity for the big money that would come through those matches on the weekend. And so when he showed up at his house, his wife flipped on him. It was name-calling, yelling, screaming, and then fighting to the extent that he turned to 911. He called the police, and they came. They listened to the stories, and they arrested her, evidently living off of more than $20 million that he had collected in prize money, was not providing the lifestyle that this wife wanted, and she was going to go through great lengths to make sure that her pro-golfer husband knew that she deserved better. How's that for contrast, right? So what qualifies the biblical wife? What marks qualify the biblical wife? What ambitions and expectations race through her mind? What biblical understandings must she have? Well, biblically, there are three, three qualities that mark the, the biblical wife. She is the helper, the honorer, and the homemaker. We're going to start with honorer first. Knowing these is the aim of tonight, I really want to just nail down knowing honorer, helper, and homemaker. But I do want you to understand it from the outset. This one with honor, this is the big one. And it's going to go on for a little while. Because there's a certain understanding that we have to come to with regard to the wife, the biblical wife, as the honorer. So number one in your notes, the biblical wife as the honorer. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And you knew that was coming. It's not a surprise to you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You'll, you'll be looking at verse 22. We will read these together. This is the verse that the golfer's wife would just outright dismiss. The golfer's wife was building her own kingdom. She loved her sin. She loved her rebellion, her wicked ways. She's a slave to happiness, but that defined on human terms, even her own human terms. And the concept of submission to her would be grotesque. Submission is slavery 
to this world, and certainly to the golfer's wife. Submission would be slavery. Further, submission is suffering. But is this right? Is this true? Is submission slavery and suffering, or is it freedom? Read with me. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. This passage is talking about purpose, meaning, even proper functioning. There is an order in the Godhead. In the Trinity, we see order. In the, in the Son, he was never about to violate the order in the Godhead. And what we're presented here, so too then, is the order that Christ is the head of the church, which has a direct correspondence to the order of husbands and wives. Direct correlation. So the purpose for the wife is found in submission to her husband. This is her proper function. This is how she is the honorer. Certainly, honoring her husband, but more importantly, honoring Christ. Honoring Christ. How do we honor Christ? Well, with submission. Let's talk about submission. When we're talking about submission, we're talking about purpose and order. These are basic, right? This should be just basic. God has a design. He's a creator. He's very purposeful in his creation. In fact, when Paul is talking about submission in the relationship between husband and wife and, and others in the New Testament, they appeal to creation, to the created order. All the way back to Genesis, they are looking to substantiate their command for this order, for submission of the wife to the husband. Consider 1 Corinthians eleven eight through 9, and it says this, For man does not originate from women, but women from men. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And again, we have in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 13 through 14, it says this, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. And when you look at the creation account, you see that woman was made for the man, made for him. Therefore, the best place for a woman, the most safe, the most glorifying to God, the most honoring to Christ is that a woman be found honoring her husband. You know, as you consider the created order, let me ask you this question. Which did God make first? Order in marriage or clothing? Order in marriage, right? Order in marriage came before clothing. But is that the way it works in your life, day to day? You think of clothing, and then you think of submission. But in God's mind, submission came first, and then clothing. Clothing is so basic for us, we, we don't ever want to consider a day without it. And yet submission was created before clothing. Submission is more basic than clothing. Thank you for honoring God by valuing clothing. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yet you will honor him most in understanding and practicing submission. The biblical wife honors her husband. The greatest honor is found in submission. But we need to open up this conversation about submission. This is the crux of the argument because it's from this 
that a lot of conversation and arguing stems. It's this one thing that we so desperately in our nature want to rebel against. Submission is a big deal. We need to unpack submission and we need to search through it what submission is and what submission is not. And so let's take a look at this. What submission is not? We're going to consider eight thoughts about what submission is not. So the first thought about what submission is not is submission is not putting the husband in the place of Christ. Submission is not putting the husband in the place of Christ. I want you to remember what Paul says in Colossians 1.18. He says this, and I'm going to remove the pronouns, the he's, so that I can say Christ's name. Christ is also the head of the body, which is the church. And Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that Christ himself will come to have first place in everything. That goes right into the lives of our wives. Christ is at the top. It's not going to benefit anybody ever if a wife takes and puts the husband as number one. That's not what we're talking about, nor do we want you to do that. We want Christ to be number one. It's going to make everything else so much easier throughout the whole course of the rest of the conversation if you can make Christ number one and know that I never deviated from saying Christ is your number one. Number two, Submission is not giving up independent thought. Submission is not giving up independent thought. Your ideas, perspectives, and opinions matter. Submission does not mean throwing in the towel or being a limp, wet noodle. Consider many biblical instances where the wife was proven right. Okay? One of those instances comes up in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verses 21 to 23. And in Judges 13, 21 to 23, there's a man named Manoah and his wife, and they get visited by an angel, an angel of the Lord. And he believes from this encounter that he's going to die. But she, and this is bad theology, right? She steps in, though, and she gives a three-point outline to him, proving her knowledge and her faith in the character of God. And I want you to hear this. Listen to this. 13, 21 to 25. Now, the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that the angel was of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Here's the wife of Manoah who actually understands the character of God. It's a good thing she was on hand with her husband. He might have totally missed and blown why the angel has visited him in the first place. She was right. Submission does not mean dumping independent thought. Number three, submission is not giving up efforts to influence. Submission is not giving up efforts to influence. And we see this so clearly and profoundly in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read 1 through 2, but write that down in your notes. 1 Peter chapter 3. That's an important passage for you. In the same way, Peter says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, They may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful conduct. 
There's our word again, submission, which happens twice in this passage. Amazingly here, Peter is suggesting speechless victory. Did you see that? This is wordless winning. How counterculture is this thought, right? Speechless victory and wordless winning. I'm more familiar, especially through popular culture, of wives seeking to win through many words. Isn't that what you've seen? Isn't that maybe even somebody's experience in here? That you try to win by many words? And I would imagine if you've tried to win by many words, if any of us have ever tried this before, go try to win by many words tonight. Is that effective? Did you actually achieve anything? Oh, you did. You achieved failure, hurt feelings, brokenness, pain, resentment, bitterness, frustration, and anger, right? All that stuff just piles up when we try to win with many words. But Peter says the opposite. He says speechless victory and wordless winning is what needs to come from a submissive wife. That is the power of influence when you can have speechless victory and wordless winning. And influence is a big part of submission. So we never want to uh, sacrifice your opportunity to influence your husband. Number four, submission is not giving into every demand. Submission is not giving into every demand. And we have seen this in many places in the scriptures. You know well that the Hebrew midwives, when they were commanded by the Pharaoh, refused to obey him and did what was right, saving Moses' life. They honored God first not man. So submission does not mean giving in to every demand that comes from the minds of men. Number five, submission is not being fearful or timid. Submission is not being fearful or timid. Your husband is not allowed to be a tyrant. And I'm thankful to have women who are in the church and understand that the church is Christ's instrument of um, headship for all people, and that by being part of the church, you have godly elders who are appointed over you who won't allow husbands to come alongside of you and be tyrants. We don't want men in our church to be tyrants, and you shouldn't accept it either. But even if he was a tyrant, you shouldn't fear him. You shouldn't fear him. You should fear God. And just as that other husband this past weekend called 911, sometimes it's necessary for a wife to call 911. If a husband really doesn't look at the church or look at secular society standards and even want to match up to what the Democrats running the state of California would have him do, they don't like domestic abuse, right? And they're liberal progressives and they don't like domestic abuse, which means their standard of conduct is here. I like that. That's good. But the husband that would abuse his wife, his standard of conduct is down here. Now, let me ask you this. If the husband's standard of conduct is down here, because he wants to abuse his wife, where is the standard of conduct for the wife that accepts the abuse? We want to have a standard of conduct that is not fearful or timid, but that is fearful of God first. So submission is not being fearful or timid. Number six, submission is not lying dormant and being immobile. It's not lying dormant or being immobile. You're gifted, wives. You're gifted. By God and your gifts, they demand expression. Submission is not the opportunity to dump your spiritual gift, get the pillows and the blankets and snuggle into four hours of ice cream and Instagram on Monday morning. That's not what we're looking for. 
We need you to express your spiritual gifting so you are not allowed to lie dormant and be immobile. Use your gifts. Number seven, submission is not believing that your husband is infallible. Submission is not believing that your husband is infallible. Again, you are not submitting to him because of any quality that he possesses. Any quality that's good or bad. Submission knows that your husband will error. Submission knows that. He will behave poorly. He's a sinner. So submission is is not done for the sake of the man. Submission is done for obedience to Christ. Do you see the difference? This is almost like that that works conversation with the the Calvinists and the Arminians, right? So on the Calvinist side, it comes from a heart that has the right disposition that wants to do the works, not because doing the works gets you salvation. See that? And, and here, submission, is in, you're not looking at the husband and, and wanting to do good works, or you're not, you're not wanting to believe that, um, that he is infallible. You, you might want to try to believe that he's infallible and try to exalt him in his opinion, but he's not, he's fallible. Christ is infallible. That's why Christ has to be the head. He has to be the head. We don't do submission for the sake of the man. We do submission for the sake of Christ. So when you're thinking about submission and you're thinking about the man and you're thinking about how infallible he is, it's so much easier to be under his headship if you recognize that first you're under Christ. First you're under Christ. Number eight, submission is not inferiority to your husband. Submission is not inferiority to your husband. In essence, in nature, in being, men and women are perfectly equal. Perfectly equal in the sight of God. Would you ever believe that Jesus would say that he's more God than the Holy Spirit? Of course not. And so too, husbands and wives are in essence the same. They're identical. Created beings made in the image and likeness of God. Please get this. Order... In your relationship with your husband, order, the order that God gave, does not equal inferiority. It doesn't equal inferiority. Does that make sense? Just because you have order doesn't mean that you've got an inferior. That's so important to get. We like order. An inferior, for us, it doesn't exist. Okay, so we've talked about eight things that submission is not. So now let's move to the positive. What is submission? And here I have four thoughts and two matters. Four thoughts and two matters about what submission is. So the four thoughts. The first is the thought about a definition. So let's look at a definition. When we're looking at submission here in the Greek, we're looking at a compound word. Two words stuck together. The first means under, and the verb is to place. So literally we have here under placement, the placing under. Put together, it means this, to subordinate, to place under, to be submissive to another, or to submit oneself. I want you to listen to this definition by John Piper. I think he summarizes this pretty well regarding the submission of wives. John Piper says, Submission is a divine calling of the wife to honor, affirm, and nurture her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. And can I tell you that this is 
my life's story. This is my life story. I have a very fond memory shared by Brother Don that we were sitting at Shepherd's Conference a little over a year ago, and it wasn't very long into the conversation when the elder that's been watching me for a long time uh, said, well, if you, if you like Oliver already, what do, you, what do you meet his family? What he was saying by that was, what do you meet his wife? It, it, you know, my, my wife is a big part of my ministry. What would ministry look like? How would the road to seminary even have gone if it wasn't for her? Uh, you'd be standing in front of a guy right now with a military haircut, the top of which would be half an inch thick, <laughs> bald and half an inch thick. She's, she's done wonders to come alongside me and shape and mold me. Her opinion is valuable. She's diving into the word and the scriptures. It means a lot. The ministry of submission is profound to be placed under, to be placed under and to find the opportunity to thrive and have joy in that position. So that's thought number one. First thought is just to define submission. The second thought is this. Submission is God's way of function and order in life. Submission is God's way of function and order in life. And you know this is true, right? Of Romans chapter 13, that we're supposed to submit ourselves to government. Everybody has this obligation to submit themselves to government. We talked about the church earlier, and you guys know 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5 talk about submission to elders. So submission happens in the church, and it's true in our homes as well. Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11.3. So we see submission and function and order. It's working all the time in a number of different ways. We see that submission creates order and function, both of which are extremely valuable to God, let alone clearly demonstrated in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So number three, the third thought. Submission is the way of life for all believers in Christ. Submission is the way of life for all believers in Christ. Whether you're called child, young person, boss, slave, brethren, wife, or husband, even if you're called part of the all people of Scripture, you are to be found subject to an authority placed over you by God. This is the most basic way that God has created expectations of your behavior. Submission is a foundational part of life for all of us. All of us are practicing submission every day. Number four, the fourth thought. Submission includes reverence and dedication to husbands. Submission includes reverence and dedication to husbands. This is not based on worthiness. It's not based on worthiness. And we'll have a conversation at the end specifically about worthiness. Reverence and dedication come because husband is a God-given role. Husband is an authority position given by God. You know, have you been satisfied in your soul with the reverence shown to the office of President of the United States for the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? What a disappointment, right? In so many respects. You want all people, the media, the parties, even the presidents, to respect the office. Respect the office. Respect the position. And you get frustrated when the office is disrespected. Because the office matters, right? The whole world's looking at this. This is representative of all of this 300, 400 million people. The title, the position... 
Because the positions of authority are given by God. As such, the role of husband is a role given by God, and it must be attended with reverence and dedication for its being given by God as an authority position. So those are the four thoughts regarding what submission is, and I want to look at two matters of submission. And the two matters of submission are the spiritual matter and the personal matter. The spiritual matter and the personal matter. So number one, the the submission being a spiritual matter. You see, submission is only possible if you are walking with God. If you are right with all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Submission is God-centered and inevitably God-powered. You must do submission as unto the Lord and as the church is subjected to Christ. That's how you've got to do submission. And these can only happen if you, wife, are filled with the Holy Spirit. It will not happen otherwise. The helper has to come. Without the helper, you are unable. With the helper, you can do all things. So this is a comprehensive matter. It includes the full range and depth of the most critical element of life, which is who you are before God. And this should challenge your theology. Because do you know God? Do you know His Son? Is His Spirit inside of you? Do you have the tools Do you have the engine? Do you have the power to be able to be submissive? So submission is first a huge spiritual issue. And second, submission is a personal matter. It's a spiritual matter. It's a personal matter. Because it demands that your answer come with actions from this question. Not just words, but actions. And the question is this. Will you... Obey God. Will you obey God? Will you submit first to God and his plan? Submission becomes highly personal. Asking the question, what will you do? What will you do? Further, it challenges what you believe. And there is the biggest challenge for all of humanity. Because we all know it's one thing to know something. But the other question is, are you going to do it? It's one thing to know, but now are you going to do? And these two things are going to play on you for the rest of your life. If you know something and you don't do it, what does that create immediately? What's, what's there? Tension. Tension. This is the course of all humanity. It's this tension that we're caught up with. We know we sin. God gave us a conscience, but we don't know how to fix it, right? That's where we look to special revelation to get the fix. Well, you've got this tension. And this tension, it makes you something immediately. If you know something and you don't do it, it makes you something. And that title, that name is always in the back of your head. What does that make you when you've got that tension? What does it make you? You know it, but you don't do it. What's that make you? Hypocrite. And that hypocrite's tattooed right across the back of your head. And you know it's there. And you go, what are you supposed to do with that? How do you fix that one? It's a personal matter. Will you obey God? Will you be one who is driven by emotion Or will you be one who is driven by... Do you know what the other side of that equation is? There's an equation in my mind. Emotion is going to drive you and lead you. What's on the other side? What could you be driven by that's not emotion? Emotion or... What did you say? 
I heard truth. That's kind of where I'm going. Emotion or principle. Principle. You can be emotionally driven and you can fall in all of the caveats that this society would have you fall into. You'll grab them all. You'll go tripping and stumbling your way through life. And you'll be emotionally driven because your emotions will guide you from one decision to the next. Or you decide that you want to be principle-driven. And if you're principle-driven, now the Word of God is going to attend to your ways. And you have a truth that is beyond comprehension. The actual words of God that are guiding you, giving you the principles for life. And if you follow the principles for life, even if you don't feel like it, you will have success, joy, peace, love, kindness. These are the things that will attend your way if you want to be a principle-driven person. Do those same things attend your way if you're an emotionally-driven person? Not the case. Love to draw that contrast between emotionally-driven and principle-driven. Submission is a challenge to your will, to your volition to your desires, because it involves a choice. What will that choice be? Will you continue to choose to be the hypocrite? You're choosing to be the hypocrite. You're choosing to put the tension into your life. You don't have to choose to put the tension into your life. You can choose obedience to Christ and take the label hypocrite and throw it off of you. And your practice can match your theology. Every failure in life, every tension that's created, every lacking and shortcoming is because your understanding is exceeding your practice. How much joy, how much peace when you match those two with each other. So first, the wife is an honorer. That means she truly understands submission. We obviously have spent quite a bit of time dealing with submission, and rightly so. I'm not going to move away from that at all. I gave you thoughts about submission. We gave a definition. We talked about it as order. We talked about the reverence of the authority. So this point about honoring, it's really setting the heart right before God and, and filling you with the knowledge that's required to make the right choices. The next two points head toward the practical side of the biblical wife. The next point after honorer is that number two, that she's, she has the quality of being known as a helper. The biblical wife is a helper. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to look at Genesis chapter 2 and talk about helper. The Azer Canigno. The helper. We've talked about what the purpose and function of a wife is. And when the heart of the biblical wife is right, she will desire to be her husband's helper. A faithful companion. We've all heard that it said the dog's man's best friend. And he's the most loyal companion. But you know what? In Genesis chapter 2, God denounces that idea entirely. Don't let someone say that. Having made man in his own image, God gave him a place to live, a job to do, food to eat, and a command to obey. And then God says this in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground... The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The woman is made second. And she is made with a specific purpose, to be the helpmate of the man, to be his helper. It was for this purpose that she was made. God gave Eve to Adam as a gift. His own flesh, his own flesh gloriously repackaged to be a true companion for him. The biblical wife reads this. She sees the scriptures and it dawns on her as she was made to be a true companion of her husband, a faithful helpmate, the perfect complement to him. As the perfect helper for her husband, she sees how her gifts and talents are uniquely given to her to help him and to bless him. Then this one, and how counter. How countercultural is this one? The biblical wife finds full fulfillment in helping her husband in his service to Christ. In helping his service to Christ. Can you imagine that? She gets on board with his plans and his goals, and she provides immense help and assistance to bring his goals to completion, to make his plan come to be a success. And I can imagine that this point makes a lot of people frustrated and upset. So we need to talk about it. She's a helper. She's always best found in the number two position. Just like the executive officer on a ship. Not the captain, but the chief executive is the one that's making all the desires of the captain captain come to pass. I think that this part... Most people can be okay with, but the challenge is always this. And I, I know that there's some of us that might struggle with this. The challenge is this. What if you don't have a godly husband? What if you're stuck with a man who has ungodly plans and goals? Or worse yet, what if you're stuck with a slug who has zero ambition and no goals and no plans? How can you help this husband? What is this wife supposed to do? Well, that's where we read 1 Peter chapter 3 earlier. And I want you to circle that again now in your notes. Maybe write it down again. You can win this man without a word by your conduct. Do you get that? You can win the slug without a word by your conduct. You can win the ungodly without a word, by your conduct. That's what the Bible says. And you know we are not supposed to grow weary in doing well from Galatians 6, 9, so we're not going to grow weary in well-doing. You know, I have a friend who's in Los Angeles, and he's been ministering with his wife to his father-in-law, her her dad. And in ministering to to his father-in-law, the man is physically unable. He's not a believer, and he's absolutely rude. He's absolutely rude. My friend comes alongside of him as a complete helper. They both do. The husband and wife team. They go to help this man. 
They show reverence and honor to him. Even in the worst of conditions, all the kind of things that come with aging, he's suffering through them, struggling through them, he and his wife, and they come alongside. They come alongside the elderly and they give respect to the position. They offer suggestions to this rude man. They offer suggestions. They question him and they find out, what are your needs? What would you like? Is there something that you want to do? How can I help you? They come alongside of him, this grumpy, grouchy man. And when the answers are not quickly forthcoming, my friend is even able to make decisions for his father-in-law that are, get this, unselfish, personally costly, and very honoring and helpful. Decisions that are unselfish and personally costly. This is how wives are supposed to be when they have Pleasure, really, the honor even of dealing with a husband who's a slug or dealing with an ungodly husband. There's a great opportunity showing unselfishness, laboring long, being patient, prodding where necessary, but respectfully, and then being decisive. It's like a firefighter showing up to a scene of an accident. The wounded don't know how to help themselves, right? They don't know how to help themselves, but the firefighter has taken the training to be able to evaluate the situation and offer the right level of care and the right level of help to just the right person, to just the right victim in need. For the wife to be the helper, she must evaluate accurately and be able to offer help. There's that question again. Do you find fulfillment in life in helping your husband in his service to Christ? I'm going to ask it again because that's the one that needs to stick with you tonight. Do you find fulfillment in life? Fulfillment, satisfaction, do you find that in life? In helping your husband in his service to Christ. Do you prove this with your communication to him? Your love toward him, your gratitude for him, your sanctification by him, particularly given his flaws, Do you understand all of the opportunity that's been afforded to you to be an influence in his life? These activities are helpful and prove that the biblical wife can be an invaluable helper. We've discussed the wife as an honorer and a helper, and the third quality of the biblical wife is that she is a homemaker. Number three in your notes, the homemaker. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Paul is writing here to Timothy, who's left on the island of Crete, and Paul is sharing with Titus what the practice of faith looks like. And he does this for several categories of people. The older men, the older women, the young men, the young women, even slaves get addressed by Paul here. Here's the question that Paul asks. Did I ask you, as we read through this passage, I ask you this. Does Paul have the ability to have expectations of your behavior? Does Paul have the ability to have expectations of their behavior? On behalf of God, is he allowed to say the things that I'm going to read to you? Further, are the issues that Paul is addressing helpful only to the people on the island of Crete? Or are they normative for all Christianity? Another way to look at this is when we read this passage from Titus, Is Paul describing only what would be effective for the Cretans, 
the people of Crete? Or is Paul describing something that is prescriptive for all of Christians in all of Christianity for all time? So you need to answer those kind of questions when we're looking at this passage. Does Paul have the right to have these expectations of behavior? And are these expectations of behavior specifically for the Cretans or are they normative for all of Christianity? Listen to chapter 2 of Titus. He says this, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What an incredible purpose statement there at the end. So that, right? So that, what? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Okay, so the questions before. Are these expectations of his behavior okay? Is it okay for him to have these expectations? Everybody said yes. Are they right? Are they just? Yes. Are they prescriptive? Prescribed for all the church or just descriptive of the folks in Crete? They're prescriptive, aren't they? Yeah, I would, I would hope that we can come to agreement that these are good, right, and prescriptive. These apply to Christian women today, just as they apply to the women of first century church in Crete. What Paul was saying is that older women must be reverent. And he gave a couple of examples of what this looks like. And in doing so, they would disciple the young women to do the same. And what were they going to disciple them into doing the same as them? Loving their husbands, loving the children, getting and using wisdom and working at home, working at home. This work at home is a compound word. It literally means home employment or homework. And the sense here is that she's to be one who is caring for the home, being a keeper of the house. You place this in its context and you understand that home is the sphere in which she is to be able to revere God and love her husband and her kids. I praise the Lord for this. Praise the Lord. Women are gifted in this. Women are gifted in this. Men, you know, I just think back to my college days. Men are like black and white. Women are like color. I just think about the, if, if you were to look at me sitting down at my dinner table when I was 19 years of age, you know, Costco chicken pot pies run out of their flavor after a while, right? <laughs> you can only have so many toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Women bring color. Men are smooth and cold. and Women have depth and warmth. The biblical wife will use her gifts to make a house, a home. This is not best left with men. This is best left with our wives. As a homemaker, she still has an outside-the-home ministry. Even as a homemaker, she has an outside-the-home ministry. She has ministry in Bible studies, book clubs and coffee dates, play dates in the park, and critical phone conversations at night. She does evangelism by sharing her faith with, faith with the community. And I would even say this, that her outside-the-home ministry even includes employment. Her outside-the-home ministry even includes employment. Some wives need to work, so work. But do not neglect your God-given ability 
and even responsibility to your home. You're needed there. Make it inviting. Make it desirable. Your husband needs that to be the case because if you leave it to him to do it, you're going to end up eating chicken pot pie. Wives, you'll do well if you have these three qualities. That you honor your husbands and find yourself in submission to him. If you are his helper if you're, and if you're a wise homemaker, you can't do any of these things well if you don't have first sorted out in your heart that the God in Scripture, the God who made you, and he's the one who owns all of these thoughts and ideas. If he is Lord, then it becomes easy to serve him and honor him. Having a heart for the Lord is a critical prerequisite. You know, I had mentioned um, worthiness, worthiness of the husband. And I want you to think about this in, in regard to submission and worthiness of a husband. Submission is not based on his worthiness. Right? I want to pick up this conversation again about worthiness. Submission is not based on his wor- worthiness. If it were, what, what would happen if submission were based on his worthiness? You think about this? What would happen if, his, if submission were based on his worthiness? Well, immediately two things. Immediately, he is unworthy because he's a sinner. And the command of Christ gets nullified immediately if it's based on his worthiness. The command of Christ is nullified. Next, it becomes the great pleasure of the wife to be unsubmissive, unsubmissive. And if she's unsubmissive, being unsubmissive because her husband is unworthy to submit to, then you would find her in full rebellion to Christ. And she would feel justified in that rebellion. The situation would get worse for her because she now believes that her husband's failures and unworthiness are keeping her from joy, peace, fulfillment, and satisfaction. And if he would just be a good and worthy man, all of life would be better. And this is a trap that many women get themselves into, willingly falling into this trap of believing that submission is an if-then proposition on his behavior. It's never been an if-then proposition. It's, it's just a straight command. Don't ever condition your obedience to anyone else's performance. You get that? Don't ever condition your obedience to anyone else's performance. These if-then scenarios. If he's nice, then I will listen. If he meets my needs, then I will hug him. This logic doesn't work with God. Adam and Eve found this out in the garden when they were confronted about their own disobedience. And what did each of them do in the garden? They used a third-person singular pronoun. What does that mean? She said he regarding the snake, he, third-person singular pronoun, and Adam said, she. Okay, so when you're standing before the throne of God in heaven, and he is judging you for your sins, do you get the opportunity to make a third-person singular argument to God for why you didn't obey him? You can, you get the opportunity. (laughs) How well is that going to fly? You can't make a third-person singular pronoun argument that gets you off the hook of obedience because your obedience is commanded. It's expected. It's right out there in front. And don't trap yourself 
by grabbing hold of the he, she argument and holding it up before God and saying, I can't obey you because of it. He, it, she, don't ever do this. This blinds you from seeing that Christ, that obedience to Christ is your paramount objective in life, being obedient to Christ. Don't stick anything in the way of your obedience. Well, I have a sheet that I, on, the, on the back there, you've got some opportunities there, ladies. 18 ways a wife may be the glory of her husband. I just want to read through a couple of these and then I'll send you on your way. Number one, ask your husband, what are your goals for the week? Number two, ask your husband, how can I help you accomplish these goals? And number three, ask your husband, is there anything I can do differently that would make it easier for you? That last one should just blow your socks off. I don't know how many people are asking that, but that's a great question. Look at number, uh, look at number 15. Look down at the bottom of the list. Some people try to do this, take this one and put it right up at the top of the list. But this is down at the bottom of the list. It's still there, right? But it's down at the bottom. Dress and apply your makeup in an attractive manner that is pleasing to your husband. <laughs> How many try to do that number one and miss all the other opportunities, right? Go back up the list and look at number six. Put him first over the children, your parents, friends, jobs, ladies, Bible studies, etc. Look at number eight. Talk about him in a positive light to others. Do not slander him at all, even if what you are saying is true. Number 10, consider his work, job, goals, hobbies, work for the Lord, as more important than your own. This, this is the kind of stuff that the secular society does not want to say to you at all. There's no place for this. There's no marketing for this. You, can't, you want to market that? You want to take that outside and sell that up and down the street? That's not going to sell, is it? But you know what? If a woman's heart is soft, tender, moldable, pliable, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this list has teeth, and this list has opportunity. Ladies, the list before you is sitting there loaded with opportunities to bring great glory to God and to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Take the list, read the list, review the notes, bring honor and glory to God, and who knows, maybe through your submission and through your loving kindness, some rebellious husband will turn and follow Christ more properly or an unruly slug of a husband might even come to be saved. We don't know. Our aim is to be obedient. Well, with that, let's close in prayer. Father, it is our opportunity uh, now to take the things that we have heard and to put them into practice. Lord, we understand the theology. We've read your word tonight. The passages are clear. There is so much opportunity sitting in front of us to bring you glory and honor, but it is through the denial of self, the picking up of the cross, and the following of you daily. Lord, I pray for the wives of Berean Bible Church that they would honor your word, that they would take these things to heart, and that incredibly powerful ministry would be done through submission, through helping, and through homemaking. Would this be the case tonight? We pray in Christ's name.